Welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Oliver Girl Grant, and I'm joined today by Dr. Catherine Herlinger. We're going to be discussing her new paper, which is written with Professor Anne Lingford Hughes, entitled Addressing Unmet Needs in Opiate Dependence, Supporting Detoxification and Advances in Relapse Prevention. Catherine, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we're going to be discussing your paper, which is broadly an overview of the current uh, state of play of uh, the opiate substitution therapy program in England and a little bit of background about the scientific underpinning of it. Um, so give us a brief summary of what the paper's about. Great, thanks. So, um, so yeah, so we wrote this article because we wanted to highlight the current state of affairs and the status quo in opiate use disorder and treatment, namely that in many Western countries, opiate related deaths are at an all time high and they are increasing year on year. But despite this growing problem, the pharmacological management of opiate dependence has really evolved very little. Um, I think that when we think of the opioid epidemic, many of us first think of the states due to the sharp increase in opiate related deaths that they've had over there over the past decade. However, the UK drug related deaths are also at an all time high. England and Wales have had the highest drug related deaths on record since records began. And Scotland has the highest drug related death rate of any country in the European Union. And when we delve into this a little bit deeper, it's actually very interesting to see who we are currently treating in our drug and alcohol services in the UK. And I think this might not be something that's common knowledge to many of our colleagues or the general public. So I do have some figures for you. So for 2020, opiate users made up the majority of individuals who access drug and alcohol services in the UK at 52%. And we know that more than half of these individuals are over the age of 40. Between 2010 and 2017, there's been a 35% increase in users who are over the age of 35, and 69% of these individuals started using heroin before 2001. So what this is indicating is that the individuals who are entering treatment are not new users. We actually have an aging opiate-dependent cohort who are coming in and out of treatment. And this aging opiate-dependent cohort appears to be contributing to the spike in drug-related deaths. So it's not young and inexperienced heroin users who are driving these figures, which is a commonly held myth, and we often associate drug use with younger cohorts. But that's just not the case for heroin in the UK. Our national statistics also seem to suggest that we are maintaining individuals on opiate substitution therapy, so with methadone or buprenorphine, for extended periods of time rather than offering or supporting detox from OST and supporting abstinence. And we know that chronic opiate use can have adverse consequences on both physical and mental health. Long-term opiate exposure has been associated with impaired respiratory function, lethal disorders of sleep, and cardiovascular disorders. And it's also been associated with cognitive impairment in several domains, including inhibitory control, impulsivity, and cognitive flexibility. So in particular for our aging opiate dependent cohort, we believe that detox from opiate substitution should be offered and supported where appropriate, but that just does not seem to be the case at the moment in the UK. So in this article, we try to unpack why the availability and the acceptability of detoxification pathways appears to be declining. Thanks. And I suppose um, you know, there's uh, obviously a, a slight air of pessimism to some of this uh, in that you're sort of uh, there's this, there's this uh, uh, part of the paper that, that you've gone over in your answer there, which is that we have essentially a cohort of individuals that are, for want of a better word, sort of slightly getting stuck uh, in the system. Um, so what do you think can be done about this, uh, this, this sort of uh, situation, which surely is benefiting nobody? 
Yeah, it's interesting to me that you describe it as pessimistic. Um, and yeah, of course, you'd be referring to the fact that stable abstinence might not be achievable for some patients. But I think that reflects a wider societal presumption that when an individual accesses a drug and alcohol service, they will eventually leave drug and alcohol free. Um, unfortunately, this just might not be achievable for some at any time during their treatment. That's just the nature of addiction. And it's a chronic and relapsing remitting brain disorder. Um, the clinical course of opiate use disorders involves periods of exacerbation and remission, um, but the underlying vulnerability never disappears. So the pattern is actually quite similar to that of other chronic relapsing conditions. Um, we often think of diabetes and hypertension. So if we use that kind of analogy, um, you, perfect control of symptoms is very difficult in those conditions as well. And patient adherence to treatment is often incomplete. So use that comparison again, we wouldn't refer patients to a diabetes specialist clinic and expect them to come out completely discharged, disease-free. Having said this, the treatment we provide can improve people's lives, and it does. Um, OST improves many aspects of physical and mental health, and an important point that we make sure we highlight in this article is that we're not advocating that detoxification and abstinence should be a gold standard of treatment for everybody, because that's just not best practice and it's not realistic. We do, however, believe it should be offered to patients as one of a range of treatment options that are available. Um, and we currently feel it's not routinely offered as evidenced by the low numbers of detoxifications that we see. Um, and we think this might be particularly pertinent in the UK due to our aging opiate dependent population who would benefit from abstinence due to the mounting complex healthcare needs as a result of their age, lifestyle, and the fact that they have been on OST in the long term. Thanks. So I suppose, um, yes, you could just as well have said it's actually quite optimistic that there's not a cohort of new young uh, heroin exactly. users entering into the system, uh, yeah. put it the other way around. So a couple of things to pick up on from, from that answer. The, the first one is this sort of parallel with diabetes. So saying this is a chronic relapsing remitting brain disorder. So uh, you've touched on this in your article a bit. You, you've got some evidence from some neuroimaging studies and various other things. So talk us through what is, what is the sort of current state of play of the neuroscience of uh, addiction? Is is this something that there's a, a sort of a mechanism for known about and identified? Yeah, so there's various um, different kind of neural networks and neural circuits that we believe or we there's evidence to suggest are um, dysregulated in opiate dependence and sub other substance use disorders as well. Um, so we're increasingly uncovering um, and characterizing more about these, but ones that we have been focusing on as a research group are um, reward sensitivity, cue reactivity and negative emotional processing. Um, and there's evidence to suggest that this Kind of dysregulation might be feeding into the relapsing and remitting nature of substance dependence and opiate dependence as well. Thanks and I, I suppose one of the things about these studies that is not really picked up on your paper that, that's a bit difficult is obviously the experience of taking an opioid for long periods of time can probably change the functional architecture of the brain. Um, so you know taking antipsychotics for example there's quite a good level of evidence now that long-term antipsychotic use can alter brain structure and function. Possibly it's the same thing for opiates so I guess the missing piece in the puzzle is, is something that would be quite hard put, to put together is evidence that individuals have brain differences that predispose them to later addiction. So is, is there any evidence that that, that that is or isn't the case? Um, you know, before you first take an opiate, your brain is somehow different from someone that doesn't go on to be addicted. Yeah, so that's an extremely difficult question to answer. And that's because the nature of addiction and substance dependence is very complex and it's highly influenced by environmental factors. However, the short answer is that we just don't know yet. 
And an important part of the complexity here is that whilst opioids are not themselves acutely neurotoxic, we do know that chronic opioid use affects brain structure and function, as we've been talking about. So that includes damage to grain and white matter, as well as impaired neuropsychological functioning and network dysregulation. So therefore, trying to identify brain differences that might be present in an individual prior to their drug use is really challenging because as they present for research, the brain changes are already present as a consequence of their drug use. So we essentially have a bit of a chicken and egg situation. And due to this, the literature is largely focused on brain changes that occur during dependence and then whether it extends into abstinence. So the answer to that is that brain changes do appear to extend into abstinence. Um, however, there is some scope for recovery with longer periods of abstinence, but we haven't really fully characterized this yet either. However, we do know from meta-analyses of twin studies that addictions are amongst the most heritable of psychiatric disorders and heritability for opiate addiction has been estimated at 50% or higher. So I do believe we have more to uncover here. Hmm. Uh, so moving on to a, a second thing that you touched on just then is this issue of uh, opiate detoxes. So uh, a, a sort of theme in this paper, um, this is not stated explicitly, but it's uh, reading between the lines. The theme in this paper is that, is that the authors sort of call for the option for more opiate detoxes. Is that a fair reading between the lines analysis of what's in here? Yes, I would agree. So talk us through that, because I, I, I assume most psychiatrists are very familiar with opiate substitution and have probably either prescribed it or referred someone to have it. But I think actually relatively few people, certainly in the younger generation of psychiatrists, have probably been personally involved in an opiate detox. So what are the sort of facts and figures here that we need to know about? In terms, sorry, just could you um, clarify what you want me to cover there? Yeah, so... Um, this paper talks about that obviously people are taking opiate substitution therapy for long periods of time as a treatment of their dependence. But one option obviously would be instead of taking a substitution drug for a long period, that you'd have a, a detox from opiates. Yes. Uh, and if I'm correct, this is something that's not done very much at the moment yes, in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think there's um, a lot of social and political factors at play here as to why it's not being routinely offered. And addiction treatment is very strongly influenced by this. So there's not a real simple reason as to why we're seeing this trend. All of the factors are really too numerous to discuss in this podcast. But in the article, we highlight three elements that we think are salient. So these are confusion surrounding the optimal length of OST treatment, the definition of treatment outcomes and the lack of alternatives and over-reliance on OST. So of particular interest to our research group at Imperial has been the lack of medications to support detox and ongoing abstinence. Um, the only medication that was licensed for use during opiate detox called lefexidine was discontinued by the manufacturer in 2018. And we do not know when or if this will become available again. So that leaves us with only medications for individual symptomatic relief in detox, and therefore detox from OST remains really difficult. In terms of relapse prevention, if someone does achieve abstinence, we do have naltrexone, which is an opioid antagonist, but there is kind of poor patient adherence and poor uptake clinically. Um, several reviews have concluded that it's not even routinely offered at all in clinical practice. And this over-reliance on OST seems to now be extending into research in the field. So if you do a quick search of clinicaltrials.gov, you'll see that almost all trials are involving an opioid antagonist, so like naltrexone, or remaining on OST with the goal of no on top illicit use, rather than abstinence from all of opioids, and rather than trying to identify novel pharmacological targets which might be beneficial. So this is really interesting because if we compare this to research in alcohol dependence, it's unlikely that you would be comparing a substitution therapy, which in this case would be alcohol or benzodiazepines, with a relapse prevention medication like disulfram or naltrexone, 
or advocating that long-term substitution with alcohol or benzos is a positive treatment outcome. You're right. It is uh, in some ways weird how uh, alcohol addiction and opiate addiction are, 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 you say, completely differently treated clinically, like almost two sides of a coin. And uh, yeah, that is that is something that I thought before is strange, actually. So something you've touched on a few times in your answers and you touched on the paper is, is this issue of dual diagnosis or people that have diagnoses of uh, psychiatric conditions, psychological distress in accompanying with the opiate substitution therapy that they're taking. Now, not to accuse you again of being pessimistic, but there's a few places in the paper that you say that you're not sure that improvement of the psychological state is, you know, a, a realistic goal for everybody during the time that they're taking opiate substitution therapy. So I guess the question that would interest an average psychiatrist is if they saw someone who was taking opiate substitution therapy, do you think it's worthwhile to attempt to address pharmacologically other psychiatric issues? So do you, do you think it's worthwhile sort of trying to pharmacologically treat depression or anxiety, say, for someone that's already maintained in opiate substitution therapy? Yeah, so um, so there is a high co-prescription rate, as you mentioned. So I think it's about 30 to 40 percent of individuals who are on OST will also be prescribed another psychotropic medication. Um, however, this could be higher. The most common prescription would be with antidepressants as well. So I can kind of only speak from my experience working in addiction service, but I think all of our colleagues would agree that dual diagnosis patients represent a particularly challenging group in terms of engagement and treatment adherence. And we know that they have poorer outcomes compared with other psychiatric patients. So when a patient presents to our service, our initial focus needs to be on that period of stabilization and then maintaining that individual in treatment and engaging with them. However, the nature of our work does involve regular consultations where key workers will um, see clients regularly and you know, do script supervision and things like that. And I do think that that can be a great opportunity to reach a demographic of patients who are otherwise really quite hard to treat and engage with. So I think in an ideal world, we would be able to, from both sides of the coin, manage these things in a kind of more effective fashion. However, I think due to the kind of chronic underfunding and understaffing um, that we all experience, it's probably just not possible at the moment. But I do hopefully think that we might be able to see a more integrated way of working in the future. Mm, it is, uh, yes. I mean, I'm sure anyone that's ever spoken to a psychiatrist working in any field will know that this um, group of patients is someone whose needs a lot of people struggle to meet and, and is sort of an ongoing concern for everyone, um, not least, I'm sure, that the, the individuals themselves. So I suppose very, a very blue sky question, just as we sort of sort of come towards the end, is I've, I've heard other people say that the modern era of opiate substitution, you could sort of start think about it starting in, in the Blair era. You know, there's a lot of increase in funding around the millennium. So I guess there's been 20 or 25 years almost now of this period. Do you think it's been a success? Uh, has it has it been worthwhile, this 25 years of, of opiate substitution in the UK? Yeah, so um, that's dependent, I guess, on what you would define as a success. Um, and that's a really common theme that we see in the opiate dependence treatment discourse. So I would say undoubtedly OST has been a success in reducing overall harm and mortality in opiate dependence. And we do have solid evidence to support this. So it would make sense in many circumstances to define success as the reduction in illicit opiate use, a reduction in harms caused by illicit opiate use and a reduction in overall mortality. For all of these, there are multiple randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses that have found that compared with no treatment, OST has been a success. 
we know that OST significantly reduces illicit heroin use. It significantly reduces injecting behaviors and therefore acquisition of bloodborne viruses. It reduces criminal activity. It improves social functioning. And then that, of course, has a positive impact on psychological well-being. In terms of overall mortality, maintenance treatment has been shown to reduce mortality in these patients by 50% compared with individuals who are not in treatment. And this reduction includes reduced deaths from overdose and suicide. Um, we might also define success as a retention in treatment. So this is important not only for harm minimization, but also so that individuals will have ongoing access to support groups and other psychosocial interventions that we know are beneficial in substance dependence. And again, it has been a success. So OST is significantly more effective at retaining individuals in treatment compared with non-pharmacological approaches alone. However, if you were to define a success as leaving treatment opioid free of illicit and prescribed opiates, then we could say it's been unsuccessful. And again, that's interesting because abstinence is broadly the goal of treatment and alcohol dependence. So, you know, we know opiate dependent individuals currently have the lowest rate of successful exits from treatment. So that's leaving treatment opiate free. Data from Public Health England suggests that approximately 6% of individuals who access services with opiate dependence will leave opioid free, compared with 38% of those in treatment for alcohol dependence. So just to put that into context, of the 140,000 patients in treatment for opiate dependence in the UK, just over 8,000 of them will have a successful exit from treatment. Whereas for alcohol dependence, of the 75,000 individuals who were in treatment last year, 28,000 of them will have a successful exit. Big, big difference in those numbers. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that sort of we do treat these two conditions very, very, very differently, despite presumably on a, you know, on a neuroscience level, on a, uh, on a brain chemistry level, we surely believe that the underlying problem, if there is one with the brain, is similar for both of them. So, I, I mean, I guess there's no one out there proposing that there's two different patterns. Well, maybe there is actually. I don't know if there is or not. You'll have to tell me. If there are people out there that are saying there are two different patterns of brain function or, or structure associated with opiate dependence is one and alcohol dependence is the other. I guess there's just one common pathway of dependence. So it, it is strange that we treat them differently. Yeah, sorry, go on. I was going to say, I could see you nodding, but go on. for the, is, is that true? Yeah, I, I think that's kind of broadly because there was such a harm minimization focus in the beginning with the with you know opiate crisis in the UK and it's difficult to justify a kind of substitution alternative in alcohol dependence possibly so maybe that's why there's such a big difference so following on from that obviously we have our philosophy about how these conditions are treated here in England and in some ways it's success in some ways it's failure um, now obviously lots of other countries do do this very very differently some for better some for worse so obviously we've had our challenges here is there any country that's done better than us that we could be learning from yes that's a really good question so the opioid epidemic at the moment appears to be more heavily affecting western countries so primarily north america australia and europe including the uk whilst the individual and social and political context of those countries does make it quite difficult to make direct comparisons there are some points we can draw from so Portugal is the first country that will spring to many people's minds because they famously decriminalised possession of up to 10 days worth of all illicit substances, including heroin, in 2001, and they were the first to do so in Europe. So this means that individuals are now assessed by an independent panel made up of clinicians, lawyers and drug specialists, um, and the panel then determines what the needs are of the individual. So if it appears that they have a substance use disorder, they will be recommended for treatment rather than facing criminal charges. So this has been called a public health approach to substance dependence. So whilst there's been some waxing and waning, 
since 2001, the Portuguese drug death rate has remained below the European average and is one of the lowest in Europe, with six deaths per million in 2019, compared to the European average of approximately 28 per million. To put that into context, this is 50 times lower than the death rate in Scotland, which is the highest in Europe at 318 per million. Very different. Very different, yes. Um, and with regards to how this has affected opiate dependence specifically, it's been reported that treatment demand has decreased by approximately 40%, whilst engagement has increased by 94%. So this suggests that either less people are using opiates or less people are developing opiate dependence, maybe due to early access to services and staying out of the cycle of criminality, which we know can perpetuate further problematic drug use. And this is all whilst engagement with services has increased, which is interesting. And unfortunately, we don't really have time to discuss all of the discourse surrounding decriminalization in any detail today. But I did read an interesting quote from Francisco Miranda Rodriguez, who's the president of the Portuguese Order of Psychologists. And he says that you cannot work with individuals if they are afraid of going to prison, as it's not possible to have an effective health program if people are hiding the problem. So perhaps these high engagement rates are suggesting just that. Um, and it will be really interesting to see how these programs develop and what the data will look like from other countries who have made similar changes like Italy and Spain. Yeah, very interesting. I guess um, we need to give up on science and medicine and get into political lobbying uh, <laughs> is the conclusion from that. Uh, Catherine, thank you very, very much for joining us on the podcast today. That was Dr. Catherine Herlinger, Clinical Research Fellow at Imperial College London, discussing her new paper with Professor Anne-Lynn Hughes, addressing unmet needs in opiate dependence, supporting detoxification and advances in relapse prevention, uh, which is published in BJ Psych Advances. Catherine, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.